Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, public health for the public. I'm Dr. Philip Chan at the Rhode Island Department of Health. Today, we're talking about something that I think everyone loves, including me, food. This week, our guests are from Johnson and Wales University, a local college, I think as all of us know here in Rhode Island, that knows a thing or two about food. I want to start off by welcoming our guests today, Dr. Kuchinata and Mallory Sullivan. Welcome to both of you. So let's start out just by introducing yourselves. Dr. Kuchinata, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll go to Mallory. Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Kara Kuchinata. Um, I'm a registered dietitian by trade, and I am also the chair of the nutrition and dietetics department at Johnson & Wales, as well as the director of our undergraduate program, the dietetics and applied nutrition program. My name is Mallory Sullivan. I'm a physician assistant. I work clinically in the emergency department, and I also work here at our physician assistant program at Johnson & Wales. Well, thank you both again for joining us. Dr. Kuchinata, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your job in general and just maybe the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? My job at Johnson Wales is to oversee our, our undergraduate program and, and help our train our future dietitians. My job as a dietitian has taken a lot of different forms. Uh, I've worked in hospitals. I was mainly a pediatric dietitian, so I worked at Hasbro Children's Hospital for a number of years. I also work per diem seeing outpatients, so counseling on uh, lifestyle medicine. And a little bit about the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist is that a dietitian is a credentialed healthcare provider who is required to go through a certain number of hours of training, at least 1,200 hours of training after getting a bachelor's degree. And starting January 1st, 2024, all dietitians moving forward will need a master's degree as well. A nutritionist, that term, unfortunately, can be used by anyone. It is not a title that is protected. So and really, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Uh, and so that can be a little bit of a a dangerous situation for the public, you know, and a dietitian can certainly call themselves a nutritionist as well. Um, and that's absolutely true. But the great thing about a dietitian is that you know that you have someone who has training, education, and who goes through continuing education to provide the best care possible. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I actually did not know the exact definition myself. So thank you. Uh, I'm always learning on this podcast as well. For the general public out there, what are the appropriate circumstances when a person should seek out uh, you know, help from a dietitian uh, and or a nutritionist, and I'm sure we'll dive into some of these topics, but just generally, when when should someone, you, you know, engage or consider seeing a dietitian or a nutritionist? That's a great question. And actually, dietitians work in a lot of different areas. So there's a lot of uh, ways you can interact with a dietitian. Um, but if somebody especially has a chronic health condition, um, like a heart condition, blood pressure, uh, diabetes, any gastrointestinal issues, food allergies, um, eating disorders, uh, you know, these are areas that there's a, there's a big tie between nutrition, health, and outcomes and, and how well somebody does. So dietitians have a lot of training in um, helping to change the way that you're eating, modify the way that you're eating to help improve your outcomes. And, you know, there's a lot of other reasons for someone to see a dietitian as well. Uh, dietitians can work with athletes, you know, they can work in community education settings, they can work in schools just for preventative health. So lots of different reasons. Wonderful. Thank you for that info. So let's start with a general question here, Dr. Kuchinata. Just broadly, what is nutrition? Why should we care about the food and drinks that we put in our bodies? Why is it important? Yeah. So nutrition is really just the act of getting in the nutrients that we need 
through food form mostly, um, to make sure that our bodies are functioning normally and to make sure that we are uh, healthy and, you know, for the pediatric population to make sure that they're growing appropriately. There are six classes of nutrients there that are essential to our body's functioning and health. And there's lots of different subcategories underneath that, but we get that from food. And so if we are very mindful about the types of foods that we're taking in, um, if we're choosing more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, lean meats, seafoods, plant-based proteins, um, we're able to get in those nutrients in the right quantities and in the right balance to, to meet our needs. And that kind of relates to my next question here. I know that in our, in our world, we talk a lot about diets and people are dieting all the time. Uh, and technically, when we talk about the word diet, it usually refers to uh, uh, what a person is eating uh, versus kind of this restrictive eating. Tell us more just in your, you know, the official, uh, what diet means to you and how you think about it. Yeah. And, you know, both of those connotations are correct. Diet is just what we consume to put in our diet. You know, a dog food, a dog eats a dog food diet, you know, so, you know, it's, it's people eat people food diet, you know, that can have a lot of different meanings, but really um, there's a negative side to that. And so that, that negative side to diet, diet culture, restrictive eating, only allowing certain foods, not allowing other foods that can be really problematic. I think most dietitians, even though we have diet in our title, um, we try to shy away from the term diet and we try to talk more about dietary patterns, balancing, getting the right nutrients in and making sure that we are getting the foods and the nutrients we need to nourish our body, but also still enjoying foods and enjoying the process of eating foods, you know, with our family, with our friends, just by ourselves um, and not putting so much pressure on eating the right types of food to fit our diet. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, you know, as a primary care physician, uh, a lot of my patients do have excess weight that do contribute to things, as you mentioned, like high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, heart disease, uh, risk for strokes, et cetera. And I think the million dollar question that I always get, at least uh, from my patients is, well, how can I shed some of these extra, extra pounds? So I guess my question to you now is, uh, you know, if people are listening who, you know, maybe have a little bit of extra weight that they want to lose, how should we think about uh, losing weight uh, to be healthy? Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it's hard to ignore the, and we can't really ignore the link between having excess body weight and the increased risk of different health conditions. But I think it's also important to remember that people of different sizes and shapes can be healthy. Um, and just because somebody has a higher weight doesn't necessarily mean they'll develop a health condition. Um, so taking that health at every size approach and treating a person, you, you know, the same way that we would treat anyone else is important. And a lot of dietitians, I think, have kind of moved into weight inclusive care and making sure that we are, we're really focusing on the same thing, looking at the whole person, looking at their goals, looking at their health conditions, making sure that what we're recommending is appropriate. And, you know, working towards making those improvements, improving, improving health, incorporating physical activity as able, and hoping that that will lead to a healthier weight range, but not really making that the focus. And I, I think that can be really helpful for people in um, kind of shifting the mindset of I need to lose weight to get healthy versus I can get healthy and that might result in a weight loss. I love the way you think about that. You know, you know, in my personal practice, of course, always trying to be accepting and respectful. Uh, as you mentioned, different sizes and weights. I think the goal is really to be healthy. 
But I also think as a physician, uh, to the point that you're making, that pretty much every study ever has showed that having excess weight does contribute to a lot of these bad health outcomes. And for me, of course, and I think as you're alluding to, it's not about uh, how you look, uh, uh, you know, about your exact weight. It's really about being healthy uh, and, and setting some of those goals uh, for health and wellness that are right for you. So, you know, there's so many diets out there, right? As we talk about different approaches uh, to lose weight, there's the keto diet, you know, uh, paleo, South Beach, intermittent fasting, vegan diet. I mean, what, if someone is looking to lose a little bit of weight, what, I mean, how do you even start that conversation? What does it look like? Yeah, I, I think, you know, everybody's goals are different. Uh, everybody's food preferences are different. There's no one right way of eating for any person, really. Um, with that being said, you know, the most research that is available to us shows that a well-balanced diet, Mediterranean style, DASH diet, plant-based diet, those that include all of the food groups in moderation in, in different percentages those tend to have the, the best outcomes for health overall. Um, and so there's not a lot of research showing that some of the newer, trendier diets like paleo, keto, say for a couple of very, you know, very specific health conditions. So keto, you know, that that is really used best for patients with seizure disorders and to, to help with seizure control. But for the general public, there isn't a lot of research that shows that keto is, is generally uh, good for the general population. So I think, you know, there are ways to shift what you're eating and still be able to, to meet those needs. Um, but when we're talking about diets, you know, again, we're putting ourselves into restrictive boxes. And if we're straying from that box, what does that mean? And so I think a lot of people, when they put themselves in those restrictive boxes and they start to stray, they feel like they failed or they feel like they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. When in reality, you know, our, our intake changes day to day and that's perfectly normal. So I think, you know, following patterns that are healthful is really the best, best approach, but meeting with a dietitian who can give more clear guidelines for you, the person, the individual is, is probably the best way to go. Yeah, I love it. And you know, it's not every day I talk to a dietitian. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you a very selfish question here. You know, one thing that we hear about, right, is uh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And you know, you go out to breakfast and getting your, you know, egg McMuffin, you know, bacon, sausage, cheese, you know, you know, eggs, you know, English muffin, carbs, fat and sugar, you know, getting your extra large coffee and getting your Captain Crunch cereal with like 20 scoops of, of sugar. Uh, I've never believed that breakfast actually is the most important meal of the day. And I actually, uh, for a lot of my life have done, even before it was a thing, uh, have done uh, intermittent fasting. So I typically actually skip breakfast uh, and usually lunch, uh, not always, uh, but I usually try to go a significant portion of the day without eating. And recently, of course, intermittent fasting has become a big thing. So what are your thoughts about intermittent fasting in general? And then I guess just on that thought too, I mean, is it is it bad to skip breakfast? And what do you think about breakfast in general? Yeah, breakfast is great. You know, it's one of my favorite meals. With that being said, I usually end up skipping breakfast a lot because I'm just not hungry at that time. I don't really get hungry until about 10, 11 o'clock. I'm actually a little bit hungry right now. Um, so, you know, I try to listen to my body and, and what my body's telling me, and my body just does not want to eat really before 10 o'clock. If, if that's what works for you, then that's great. Um, it, everybody's different. Some people wake up and they want to start their day and start their day with, with the breakfast. You know, we want to be mindful about the breakfast that we're having. If there's nothing wrong with an egg and cheese sandwich, might not be the best idea to have egg, cheese, and sausage or egg, cheese, and bacon every day. 
um, maybe switching that up a little bit. Um, you know, cereal can certainly be part of a healthy breakfast, but we want to think about things in the way of like balance. So if you're just having cereal with milk, you know, it's not really balanced because you're missing a fruit or vegetable. So trying to incorporate that in there. So there's little things we can do to make sure that what we're eating is the best that it can be and the most nutritious it can be without changing everything that we're doing. So with, with regards to intermittent fasting uh, in particular, though, you know, there is some research that's showing that it could be helpful in cert with certain uh, health conditions. It may be helpful with type 2 diabetes. It may be helpful with insulin, insulin resistance. It may be helpful with Alzheimer's disease. But the, it, we're really looking at research that's done on cell studies in animals. We're not really looking at people yet. So I don't really think that it's necessarily, a, you know, the jump that you necessarily want to make. Um, so again, I would plug meeting with a dietitian if you have a health condition and you're considering intermittent fasting. In some conditions, it might not be safe or practical. Um, so work with your dietitian on finding the right balance. And related to that, you know, I was watching a clip of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, right, famous movie actress, the other day, uh, and she was talking about what she eats in a day and. Uh, she was talking about uh, uh, fasting and, you know, then drinking coffee and some celery juice and bone broth and, you know, and then eating mostly vegetables for dinner. And I guess even related to intermittent fasting and, and uh, a diet like Gwyneth Paltrow eats, how concerned should people be about getting enough nutrients? And do some of these diets, are you lacking in some of those essential nutrients that you really need for your overall health? Yeah, I mean, they, there are definitely diets that are very restrictive calorie wise, total energy wise, fat, protein, you know, take your pick on a diet. And there's probably some sort of restriction where you're not meeting your needs for, for something that that's kind of the trouble too, with trendy diets and fad diets is that for some person, you know, maybe they tried intermittent fasting or paleo, whatever it might be. And it worked for them. They lost a lot of weight. They tell everybody that they lost a lot of weight. Somebody else tries it. Maybe they lose weight. They put it on social media. But what you really don't see is what happens when somebody starts to get back into a normal eating pattern. Uh, and so they will probably have a weight gain. They'll probably be ashamed about it and then probably go back on to that restrictive way of eating. So typically these fad diets and these trend diets tend to have this vicious cycle of restriction, weight loss, going back to normal eating patterns, or some people will call that cheating, which is you know really not true, um, gaining weight, feeling ashamed, and then going back into these vicious patterns. And with, with Gwyneth Paltrow in, in particular, you know, I don't really like to speculate on people's diets, but if what she reported was true and actual of what she eats on a daily basis for a long period of time, what she, what she provided, the celery juice, the bone broth, the vegetables, and really nothing else, um, that to me is really missing out on a lot of nutrients. I don't know what her energy needs are, but I would guess that that's not meeting her energy needs. Uh, it does not look like it's meeting her protein, fat, or carb needs. Um, but again, this is what somebody's saying in an interview may not be necessarily true, but I think the bigger problem is the people that hear that want to emulate that because she has a thin body and that is something that is desirable for a lot of people. And so going about that in, in not the healthiest way is probably going to cause different problems. So when I talk to my patients about potentially losing a, a couple pounds, I, you know, I appreciate your point that everything's personalized, right. And really understanding uh, what the person's goals are, uh, what you're eating. I'm just curious about some general rules. And I guess, you know, when I talk to people, right, a lot of people are having three cups of coffee, you know, 12 pack of diet Coke a day, 
you know, ice cream, you know, a lot of processed food. Uh, so when I'm chatting with folks, I, I try to like, I try to assess where there's too much. And I think it's difficult to tell everyone that you got to cut out everything that you like, right? That's not sustainable or feasible. You know, if you like ice cream, I love ice cream. Who doesn't like ice cream? I, you know, I eat ice cream several times a week, but I try to really cut down on processed foods. You know, I tell people to cut down on processed foods as much as they can. Don't give up the coffee, but maybe don't have three supersized, you know, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, you know, maybe have one, you know, start there. Uh, soda, I'm not sure I have anything good to say about soda, you know, soda once in a while, but any more than one a day is probably too much in my opinion, but how do you, how should we think about like the processed foods and, you know, we're in a society where I actually have a Dunkin' Donuts across the street right now, which is also two buildings down from McDonald's, right? So what are some general rules about processed foods and the coffees and the, you know, the, the Big Macs, how do we, how should we think about all that? Yeah, and I, I think it's hard. And and as you mentioned, you know, we live in an environment where we have constant access to food, which makes it difficult for you know trying to make better choices and trying to make sure that we're not overdoing it when we literally could just walk out our building and, like you said, there's a Dunkin' Donuts right there. And I don't mean to keep going back to like it's all individualized, but it really is. Uh, and so meeting our clients and our patients kind of where they're at. And like you said, you know, asking what's one thing that you can do and can we cut down on one thing or work on this? I think that's really helpful versus the approach of like, well, let's do this whole big change in our diets or processed foods specifically. They're not, they don't necessarily have to be a bad thing. And as long as we're incorporating them in, in minimal quantities, you know, that's, that's going to be helpful. Um, but as much as we can kind of incorporate whole foods into what we're eating, maybe mix it up and with the processed foods, you know, wh whatever ends up working for people. Um, but I, I think a lot of what it comes down to as well is most people don't really know what's in the food that they're eating. Um, and so a little bit of education, a little bit of digging into, well, what is actually in my coffee? You know, how much does it kind of add up if I have that throughout the day? I'm not a big proponent for people for, for tracking their calories or tracking their intake. I think it can be a, a short-term eye-opening exercise, um, but it's not something that I really think is necessary on a long-term basis. So something that could be helpful, you know, for maybe a day or two is for somebody to actually write everything down and see what that actually kind of does amount to. And that can help you figure out where you need to make some changes. Yeah, thank you for that. Much appreciated. I, I want to go over to Mallory now to talk a little bit uh, about some of the work that she's doing uh, at Johnson & Wales. And you teach a course called Food is Medicine. And certainly as a physician, that name is uh, of interest to me. Uh, and I generally agree with that concept. But tell us, food is medicine. What does that mean to you? So... You know, I think historically when people hear the name Johnson & Wales, they always think the cooking school, a culinary school. Um, but we're so much more than that now with our whole College of Health and Wellness. Um, when our physician assistant program was starting, our first class started in 2015, it was really important for us to include that um, history and expertise of the culinary program um, into our program here. So our food is medicine course really takes an uh, interdisciplinary and collaborative approach to bridge some of the knowledge deficiencies that exist in traditional healthcare. Um, so what it looks like is our students in their didactic year, so the first year of their program, they're in the classroom learning. It's a two semester series where they really explore the role that diet has on health and wellness with the goal to provide our PA students with a framework that they can utilize when providing counseling and education to patients in future clinical practice. Um, so how it works is we have a lecture-based series where we have 
Kara and her colleagues in nutrition and dietetics come in to provide our students a series of lectures where they explore trends in diets uh, utilized in treatment, as well as in health promotion and disease prevention of some of the most common diseases that we see that we already talked about, such as you know cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Um, and the second part of the program is lab sessions. So what we do is we go down to our Harborside campus, which is our culinary campus, and we work with our chefs down there. Um, our chefs who um, are specialized in culinary nutrition work with our students, and they really help um, design classes to improve the understanding of how nutrition can impact the health and wellness while providing insight into barriers as well that patients may face when following a particular um, diet plan. So as we know, there's lots of barriers that can uh, be in place in terms of patients eating the way they may want to eat, such as um, access barriers, financial barriers. So we take all of that into account when we're teaching our students um, so they can hopefully relay some of this information to their patients. So down in the kitchens, we get a we understand what those diets are. We have recipes that emulate those, those diets or those focuses for the disease states that we're learning about. And then the students are able to cook these meals in the kitchen, working with the chefs and really see how they can incorporate this into their diet. So um, for example, we just, uh, when we learn about cardiovascular health, um, our students in the classroom are learning about what is high blood pressure, what is high cholesterol, how do we listen to the heart, how do we examine patients? But then we also learn about how nutrition can affect those disease states. We learn about the Mediterranean diet from the dietetics and nutrition team. Then we go to the kitchens and we will make recipes that uh, follow those diets. Um, and over the years, the students have really found it to be helpful in terms of patient counseling. You know, it's one thing to tell your patient you need to eat less salt, but it's another thing to explain to them how they can take maybe a traditional family recipe, change the ingredients a little bit and make something that's a little bit more helpful for themselves and their family. So it's a really special part of our program here. That really sounds amazing, actually. And, you know, one thing that I also remind people, and I think that you're saying this as well, is, you know, eating healthy doesn't necessarily need to mean bland, right? Or not being creative uh, or just eating, you know, broccoli all the time, right? What are, so just in the example that you gave, I mean, let's say I had high blood pressure and I, I had no idea what to cook. I mean, what are some things that you would tell people? It doesn't have to be high blood pressure, but what are some things, how would you counsel me about how to cook and some ideas and how would that discussion go with people? So I think what, you know, with that example, particularly in, in the kitchens, when we're learning about the Mediterranean diet, one thing that's important in terms of keeping, um, the food still tasting good. It's not, everything's not bland is, you know, limiting some of that salt, we can substitute with other things. So a big thing that we use in the recipes may be citrus. So lemon juice, lemon zest, um, different herbs and spices, we can still incorporate a lot of taste into what we're eating with limiting some of the factors that we're, we're used to putting on our food to taste good, such as salt, taking away a little bit of that and adding in some other flavors can still make uh, meals taste good without significantly changing um, the meal and what we're making and with still making it be something that's palatable and, and intriguing for patients to eat. I love that. Thank you both so much for talking. We are winding uh, down here. I do want to ask each of you to weigh in though on uh, one question here, which is more of a public health kind of a general question. Uh, no right or wrong answer here. Uh, but you know, one thing, as we all know, that we struggle with in our culture is this culture of fast food, of, you know, excess weight, uh, being overweight, you know, what do we need to do as a society, as a culture, where do we need to go to really address this problem? So I think, you know, 
making those little steps um, is, is important, incorporating things every day. You know, we live in a society where we have to drive everywhere. You know, there's not a lot of opportunity for us to walk. So if we can incorporate a little bit of that, um, you know, non-exercise activity that can make little, little differences. Um, in, in trying to make sure that we are eating a healthful diet and being mindful about what we're taking in. So, you know, again, be trying to get in more fruits and vegetables, which tend to be lower in energy, tend to be lower in calories, a little bit more filling, have more fiber, have more uh, water, but provide us with nutrients as well. So making half our plate fruits and vegetables, trying to get a little bit more exercise, making little steps there can be helpful. Thank you. Any additional thoughts, Mallory? I think I will just echo what what Kara had mentioned. I think trying to incorporate uh, more veggies into our diet and remember to keep ourselves moving every day are, are the two most important things that we can do and just taking little steps each day um, to try to move to a more healthful lifestyle. Wonderful. Well, as we close here, I do want to thank you both so much uh, for your time and uh, your insights and your wisdom here, a uh, topic that's uh, personally important to me uh, as well. So thank you both again for joining us. Uh, and I want to let our listeners know as well that we do have a number of programs here at the Rhode Island Department of Health uh, focused on nutrition, uh, especially as part of our WIC services, WIC, known as Women, Infants, and Children Services. Uh, people can check that out for any additional nutritional information. Uh, please do check us out online at health.ri.gov backslash WIC, or you can contact our local WIC office, which we have some in the community. So in closing, I want to thank our team here at the Rhode Island Department of Health for all their work. I want to specifically thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, and Carol Stone, our technical director. I want to thank our guests, uh, Dr. Cucinata, as well as Mallory uh, from Johnson & Wales University. I'm Dr. Philip Chan, signing off from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all and be well.